Good morning, everybody. Again, glad to see everyone here today. If you missed it, uh, my name is Amanda Neppel, and I'm the discipleship director here at Hope Des Moines. And um, I'm just so glad to be here this morning. It's November 1st, which is crazy to me um, that it's November already, first of all. Second of all, the fact that it is November means that some of you are going to go home today and start digging your Christmas tree out of the attic. Um, which, oh, I'm getting some nods. Yes, yes, I am. That's awesome. Um, personally, I disagree with you, but that's okay. Uh, if, if you want to do that on a 70-degree day in November, more power to you. Have at it. Um, last night was also fall back. I hope that's not the first time you're hearing about that. So some of you had an extra hour of sleep. Some of us had an extra hour to work on our sermon, and either way, we're all happy about that. So I want to dig right in today because this passage that we heard read today, this is not the image of Jesus in this passage that we heard. This is not the kind of Jesus that we hear about a lot of times. This Jesus who is calling people liars and telling them that they are from their father, the devil. This is not the Jesus that we are often used to. I did children's ministry for about 10 years. And so, you know, when we talk to children about Jesus, the image of Jesus that we present appropriately is a lot like the Matthew 19 Jesus, where he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And that is a really appropriate way to teach Jesus to kids because we want kids to know that there's nothing that they can do to separate themselves from the love that Jesus has for them. And so, and we want adults to know that too. So we kind of lead off with that image of Jesus, which is totally appropriate. That's biblical. I love this little doll. Like this is the soft and huggable Jesus, right? That we can put him in our little pocket and carry him around. And it's great. So that's on one side of the spectrum. We have that Jesus. On the other side of the spectrum, we have an image of Jesus like what we see in the book of Revelation. Um, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, a lot of people have different ideas about the book of Revelation, but ultimately, Revelation is a book of hope. And Revelation is a book that tells us that at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, that there's going to be one victor, and it's going to be Jesus right? And so in this image of Jesus, we, saw, we see this warrior, this man who's leading the very armies of heaven. Let's read this one together if you can see it there. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. This image of Jesus, this is power. This is the Jesus who comes after everything is said and done and who one final time defeats evil and tears and sadness and sorrow, defeats it once and for all, leading the entire armies of heaven. This image of Jesus just makes us want to hit our knees and say thank you and praise him and humble ourselves before him, right? Because this Jesus is going to set everything straight. And so what we find today in the passage that we heard read today in John chapter 8, we have our soft and huggable, cuddly Jesus over here, and we have Jesus, the warrior of leader of heaven's armies over here, and we need to kind of go into the middle because we've seen that Jesus welcomes those into heaven who are like the children, and we've seen that Jesus is a warrior named Faithful and True. So the image of Jesus that we get today is kind of those two things somewhere in the middle of that continuum. 
Now, in our passage that we heard read today, we did something that often makes people very uncomfortable. Have you ever walked into a room and you open the door and you can cut the tension with a knife? Like you know that the people in there have just been having it out and you happen to open the door and walk in just at the right time? That's kind of what we're doing here today with this passage. When we jumped in in verse 48, we opened the door just as the Pharisees are about to sling at Jesus the worst possible insult that they can think of. They're going to call Jesus, they call him a Samaritan devil. Now, (laughs) them's fighting words, right? As a preacher, (laughs) as a preacher, one of the things I'm supposed to do is help you kind of get an image of what is said in this book, right? I'm supposed to kind of help give you a 2015 alliteration of what was said here. I can't do that with this because I want to keep my job. And if I were to give you a 2015 version of what, this, uh, what the Pharisees said to Jesus, I mean, it'd be all over. This would be my last day, okay? Suffice it to say, it was bad news. And this is what we've walked into. We've opened the door just as the Pharisees are slinging the worst insult they can think of at Jesus. <clears throat> so we have to back up a little bit. We have to figure out what the fighting is all about what everyone is so riled up over. And so to do that, we have to go to chapter, we just have to back up a little bit earlier in John. John uh, chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus is saying to the people that he's talking to, which we believe are probably the Pharisees, and um, it doesn't, the NLT version doesn't come out and say that that's who they are, but we know that Jesus saves his harshest criticism for the religious leaders, the people who are responsible for helping others see God, and they've gotten so far off the rails. And so Jesus says to them, if you, anyone who is my disciple, listens to what I say and obeys my teaching. And then in verse 32, he says, and when you do that, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the people who hear that take it very literally And they're going to bring up a guy named Abraham. And they're going to say, Jesus, what are you talking about? We are descendants of Abraham. We have never actually been slaves in our lifetime. And so what do you mean we need to be set free? So if we want to unpack what Jesus is talking about and why everyone gets so riled up, we need to know a little bit about who Abraham is. And Abraham is a very nice, listen, we find him in Genesis chapter 11. We know very little about him. All we can assume is that Abraham, Abraham is probably a very nice pagan wandering around out in the wilderness, hanging out with his dad and his family as he would have done. And all of a sudden in Genesis 11, really out of nowhere, At that time, he was known as Abram, and God looks down, and God knows that God has a plan that needs to be put into place, and so God looks down and sees Abram, and eventually, over the course of time, he changes his name to Abraham. He says, Abraham, here's the deal. Listen up. This is pretty cool. Abraham, I am going to bless you beyond measure. Abraham, I am going to show you a new land. I want you to leave your father. I want you to go to this new land. It's awesome. It's flowing with milk and honey. You're going to love it there. Trust me. Not only that, but God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And Abraham, not only that, Abraham, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And beyond that, Abraham, all nations of the world are going to be blessed because of you. And so Abraham's like, 
okay. I mean, God obviously has this plan in place, and God's going to do what's God's, what God is going to do. And so Abraham just says, all right, that sounds fine. Um, but God, BTW, I don't know if you're paying attention, but I actually don't have any descendants. And so this whole um, numerous stars in the sky thing, this is going to be a little tricky if you don't do something about that right? And we know that um, God looks on Abraham and says, God says, don't worry, Abraham, I got this covered. And sure enough, Abraham and Sarah, when they are way too old to have a baby, that's exactly what happens. They have a baby, and they name that son Isaac. And then Isaac grows up, and Isaac has two sons, and Isaac's sons are named Esau and Jacob. And then a little bit later in Jacob's life, God has some work he has to do in Jacob. And so we can read in Genesis how God and Jacob meet up, and there's kind of this interesting account that takes place. And after that, first of all, Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life when he interacts, after he interacts with God. And God then changes Jacob's name to Israel. So when we talk about the descendants of Abraham and we talk about the Israelites, that's where all of that comes from. It comes from Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and they go on to be the 12 founders of the tribes of the nation of Israel. So all of this has happened. So, so far so good. We know who Abraham is. There's an interesting thing about the promises that God made to Abraham, if you notice. God takes complete responsibility for everything that's going to happen to Abraham. God says, I will give you this land. I will give you descendants. I will make you a blessing. There is no time in any of Genesis where you're going to see God say to Abraham, Abraham, if you do this, then I'll scratch your back and I'll do this. That's not what any of that language is used. You're not going to find it in the uh, book of Genesis in regard to Abraham. I double-dogged area. Read it. See if you can find it. Um, so <clears throat> this is one of the reasons why the Pharisees get so upset because the Pharisees know those promises as well. The Pharisees and the religious leaders know that as descendants of Abraham, they are entitled to these promises. They believe that as descendants of Abraham, all they have to do is say, yep, I'm with Abraham, I'm good, check, got it, I'm all set. And as we know, because we've been studying Jesus and we've been cutting, studying the book of John, we know that Jesus does not care one iota what their heritage is. Jesus is after their heart. And so Jesus says, yes, I realize that technically you are descendants of Abraham. But Jesus says, when I look at you and when you look at me, and Jesus says, I know what's in your heart. You're not following your true father, the father of Abraham, the father who delivered these promises to Abraham. You're not following that because Abraham was faithful. Genesis tells us that God saw Abraham's faithfulness and counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't perfect, but because he believed in God's word and because ultimately when God said go, Abraham went, God counted that to him as righteousness. Jesus says, there's not a righteous bone in any of your bodies because you don't have faith in anything that I'm saying. Jesus is saying, if you knew the father, the father of Abraham and my father, you would be able to see what it is that I'm saying. But Jesus says, the reason you can't understand, the reason that we can't see Jesus as the son of God, as coming to fulfill all these promises, Jesus says that the reason the Pharisees can't see that is because they're following their father, who is the devil. So now we kind of can get a little bit of perspective. In verse 44, Jesus tells 
the religious leaders that their father is the devil. And then a little bit later, basically what we have is the Pharisees saying, I know we are, but what am I? <laughs> Real mature Pharisees, right? Jesus has said, your father is of the devil. And the Pharisees come back and say, no, you're the Samaritan devil. Right? Jesus has delivered this really challenging teaching. And Jesus has said, by the way, can any of you who are here actually accuse me of a sin? Can any of you standing here actually accuse me of a sin? You can't see who I am, but can you accuse me of a sin? And what's super interesting about this is if we go back to earlier in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, that's the story of the woman caught in adultery, right? And they drag her out, and they're ready to stone her. And Jesus says, if any of you can stand here and tell me that you're free of sin, then by all means, throw the first rock. And nobody has anything to say. Nobody can say that they're free of sin and therefore entitled to stone this woman. Here later, in, uh, in the section that we heard read today in John chapter 8, Jesus says, can any of you accuse me of a sin? And once again, they have nothing to say. Nobody has anything to say. And Jesus says, you can plainly see with your eyes that you cannot accuse me of a sin, and yet you still cannot see who I am. And I think as we read that and we think about the, the religious leaders who were hearing these words of Jesus, it is so easy to stand back and say, good heavens, were they just dumb or what, right? It is so much easier to look out at someone else and see how their pride and their lack of humility is causing them troubles. Am I right? It is so much harder to look inside ourselves and see how we are doing those same things to ourselves. Um, I, before I did children's ministry, I did daycare in my home. And so I did that for, for several years as well. And I had um, a little girl who I watched, and she, bless her heart, and her poor dad, every time her dad would come to pick her up at the end of the day, she would just start to cry. Just every day her dad would come, and she'd, 30 seconds before, she was excited that daddy was coming and it was almost time to go home, and then dad would open the door and we would just have a complete meltdown. Now, there wasn't anything going on that anyone needed to be worried about. It was just that, for whatever reason, whenever dad would walk in the door, just tears. And I know that it broke her dad's heart every time that this happened. And so as, as the daycare provider, I'm trying to see how I can help ease this situation. But really, it just felt like there wasn't a whole lot I could do. And I'm going to just confess to you right now, okay? I began to get just a little bit smug and how awesome of a daycare provider I must have been. <laughs> right? It must have been the best hours of this young girl's entire life. And then, this particular family offered to watch our girls, and there were only two of them at the time, and I'm going to resist looking over there, I don't want to make eye contact and give it away, but... So they offered to watch our two girls, and my husband and I went out to a movie. And we got back from the movie and went to pick up our girls. You can guess where this is going. Not only did said daughter of mine um, cry, we are talking about a fit that up until that point in her life I had never seen, and I've never seen one like that since either. But we are talking F5 level, just insane tantrum, okay? It was screaming, it was crying, it was throwing our body on the floor, it was kicking, it was all sorts of just really 
humiliating <laughs> things that happened. <laughs> and so I got knocked down off my pedestal there a couple, I mean like face first, broken nose onto the floor, knocked down off of my pedestal. And so I started doing a little research then. I had a few things to learn, obviously. And so I learned that it didn't have anything to do with anything besides that, the individual child and how they handle transition from one thing to the next. And frankly, if we do, you know, we're raising our children and we're giving them boundaries and we're bonded with them, we become their safe place, right, as parents. And so we send them out into the world and a child can know what they're supposed to do. Like this particular girl didn't argue with me about eating her vegetables. She didn't argue with me about taking a nap. She'd been holding it together all day, right? And as soon as dad walked in the door, dad was the safe person, and it just came out. That's what was going on. It had nothing to do with me, for better or for worse. It had nothing to do with me. So when we talk about humility, when we talk about um, getting ourselves out of the way, the secular world, when we say the word humility, kind of goes a little bit berserk and comes up with all sorts of negative connotations. But the one thing that the secular world would say about humility is really that it is being teachable. Like with what happened to me, I went out and got more information then so that I could learn about what had happened. And I think that's fair. I think that being teachable is certainly a, a part of humility, absolutely, no question. But I think for the Christian, I think that to be teachable is only part of the equation. Because I think that as a Christian, if we're talking about being humble, what we're really talk talking about is every day dying to ourselves a little bit more in order to be more like Christ. To be humble as a Christian is not to let somebody else have the last cookie on the plate or to go to the back of the line because everybody else wants to be in front. That's not what humble is as a Christian. As a Christian, it, it might be, but that certainly isn't all of it. As a Christian, to be humble is to say, I give up myself more and more every day, and I give it up to Jesus. Um, some of us here at Hope Des Moines are um, very well familiar with uh, the recovery ministries that we have going on here at Des Moines and with different recovery programs. And um, this is one of, this is a way that we see this issue of humility play out every day. And I want you to stick with me here for a minute. Can I get the serenity prayer on the screen, please? Um, this prayer was written by a man named Reinhold Niebuhr, and he was a theologian who lived from about 1890 to about 1970, and he wrote the serenity prayer. He was not involved with recovery or, or with um, addictions programs, 12-step programs, but it shouldn't surprise us to realize that what Niebuhr believed was going on with humanity was this self-focus. This idea that just because I managed to do one thing right one time means that I can do everything right all of the time. Niebuhr was saying that is absolutely not true. That is absolutely false. He wrote books. I mean, this was uh, the guy who um, Obama said was his personal favorite theologian. This guy was prolific. And this prayer, this serenity prayer, is one of the prayers that he wrote. Let's read this together, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
I think that for all of us, when we approach this prayer humbly and with an open heart, this prayer can completely change the way we look at our relationship with God. And here's why. First of all, it acknowledges that we are asking God for help. It acknowledges that we cannot do any of this by ourselves. So it doesn't say, help me to get through this day. It says, God, help me to do this. It acknowledges that looking at ourselves and changing the things that we need to change, the ways that we need to die to ourselves to be more like Christ, it acknowledges that that's really hard to do, that it's so much easier to see uh, the speck in our friend's eye than the log in our own. And so it acknowledges that we need to ask for help to change those things about ourselves. Because here's the thing, this sin of wanting to be the God of our own life, this sin where we decide that we have the answers, this plays out differently for each of us, but I promise you, it plays out for each of us. This was the original thing that got Adam and Eve into so much trouble. It wasn't that God had said you can have everything except for this one little tree. It wasn't that Adam and Eve never, you know, when the serpent came up and said, you really want to have that, you should go ahead and have it. It's not that Adam and Eve said, well, my goodness, it had never occurred to me that maybe I should actually do that. Adam and Eve wanted to have that fruit so much, and all the serpent had to do was just give them a little nudge, and they were face first in that tree, both of them. It did not take any real negotiating or any real arguing to get them to say, you know what, I actually do know better than God about this. I actually, I can handle this. I've got this. So this idea of dying to ourselves every day, of asking God to help us see those things in ourselves that need to die so that we can be closer to Christ and be more like Christ, that's the work of Christ in us, right? Not only that, but this prayer says, um, give me the uh, serenity except the things I cannot change. I'm sorry, I said those words wrong, I apologize. But he says, give me the courage to change the things I can. It is not an easy thing to wake up in the morning and say, I have a real problem with busyness. I have a real problem with overworking. I have a real problem not yelling at my spouse. It is so hard to wake up in the morning and realize that we have these things that we need to work on in our lives and to realize that we need God's help to do it. And then when we get to that moment where we want to yell, when we get to that moment where we want to do something that we know we're not supposed to do, we want to squeeze too hard, we want to take another drink, we want to uh, go to work because it's easier than being at home, it takes real honest courage to say, Jesus, help me because I can't do this anymore. I can't do this by myself anymore. And finally, the wisdom to be able to tell between the two. Look, we want to be the God of our own life, and maybe I should just stand first in line here, and maybe I should say, I want to be the God of other people's lives too, which is really unfortunate, because I am super, super bad at it for myself. So imagine how terrible I am at it for other people, right? I can't keep myself in line, let alone anybody else. And sometimes the line between what I am responsible for with Jesus' help and what other people are responsible for with Jesus' help, we all know it. Sometimes that line gets really fuzzy, right? And it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to tell the difference. More wisdom than any of us have. That's why we have to ask God to help us. Humility for the Christ follower is dying to ourselves every day. 
It's getting rid of this idea that on our own we can do a single thing the way Christ wants us to do it. And it's realizing that we have to have God's help. There's a particular quote um, from C.S. Lewis that I really, really enjoy, and it gets right to the heart of this. If you think of this world as a place simply intended for our happiness, we find it quite intolerable. But if we think of it as a place for training and correction, it's actually not so bad, right? Like I said, humility isn't about letting somebody else have the last cookie on the plate. It's not about this uh, idea of letting everyone else go first. Like I said, it might be if you have a problem with eating too many cookies (laughs) or always wanting to be first in line. It might be about that. But probably what it's about is getting to our sense of what we deserve, what we think we deserve. It's the word entitlement that trips us up every time. And all of us, no matter our station in life, struggle with this idea of entitlement. We, for whatever reason, every single one of us thinks that there are some things that we should have. We should be able to go to church and be able to sit and listen for an hour. We should be able to have a a car drive home unencumbered by other traffic. We should be able to have a car that gets us from point A to point B reliably. That's the point of a car. We should be able to walk down the street and have people get out of our way because don't they know we're in a hurry? We should have dinner on the table when we want it because we're hungry and I'm sure that's somebody job in our house to make sure that all those things get done. We have the sense that when we follow Christ sometimes, or just because we're here, that we are entitled to certain things. But the truth of the matter is, all we are entitled to are those promises that Jesus made, and they are pretty big promises. And when we let go of ourselves, when we say, God, I can't do this on my own, but we say, Jesus, I need your help. I need to grab onto those promises that you made in chapter 8, verse 32, that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. We see, Jesus, I cannot set myself free from those chains by myself. Jesus, I need you to do that for me. And the other promise that Jesus delivered in that passage was the promise of eternal life, right? That whatever is happening here, the sorrows, the tears, the things that drag us down, the things that mess with our ideas of what we are entitled to. Jesus has taken care of all of that. And even when he was talking to the Pharisees and they knew that he could, they could not understand a word that he was saying, he still said the words, hoping that there would be someone who would hear it, who would maybe read it 2,000 years later and would say, I need that guy. I need that guy because I cannot do this by myself. Humility isn't about low self-esteem or any of those things. The people who are most humble are the people who have realized that their identity, their reality, who they are deep down, comes from their relationship with Jesus Christ. Humility is about knowing who we are so that we don't need to be right, so that we don't need to be first in line, so that we don't need to try and force our little G God onto our friends or our family or our neighbors or our community. Humility is about having our identity in Jesus Christ, the only one who is actually up for the job of letting us know who we are.
Jesus said that we are going to have struggles. In this life, you will have many sorrows and trials. But Jesus says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this life, things that we think we should have, we are not, never maybe going to get. In this life, we are going to have sorrows and we are going to have tears. But Jesus, who is faithful and true, says, take heart. Take heart, because I have overcome the world. If there was ever any human being who was entitled to anything, it was Jesus. Yes? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus was never um, entitled to die a humiliating death on the cross. All of that, Jesus did for us. He did that for us because he knew that we were in a mess that we could not solve by ourselves, no matter how hard we would try. He did it for those religious leaders who couldn't see who he was and who didn't care. He did it for us as we sit here, some of us just so thankful, some of us so broken or hurt today. For everyone in between, Jesus gave up what he was entitled to, and he said, I got this. I'm going to do for you what only I can do, what you certainly can't do for yourselves. So the night in the upper room with the disciples, Jesus was trying to get them to understand what was going to be coming, of course, even though they couldn't. But what he was beginning to do was to demonstrate for them the ultimate image of humility. He was beginning to try to ground them through the promises of communion, of his body broken for us. He was beginning to lay that groundwork. And so when we celebrate communion today, we celebrate the promises that Jesus made, that he sets us free from our sins in this life and the promise of life eternal with him and our Heavenly Father in the next. Please stand as we prepare our hearts for communion.